Well, good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is June 21st, 172nd day of the year. 193 days remain till the year's over with. Uh, holidays observances on this date. Got a National Yoga Day. National Selfie Day, Summer Solstice, World Day of Music, Andean New Year, Aymara New Year, uh, Canada's National Indigenous Peoples Day, Go Skateboarding Day, International Day of the Celebration of the Solstice, Martyrs Day in Togo, National Aboriginal Day, National Arizona Day, National Cookie Dough Day, uh, National Day of the Gong, National Daylight Appreciation Day, National Dog Party Day, National Peaches and Cream Day, National Seashell Day, who comes up with these things, National Smoothie Day, National Yard Games Day, Reserves Day, Shades for Migraine, Grab yourself a pair of sunglasses. Royal Giraffe Day. Um, World Humanist Day. World Hydrography Day. And World Motorcycle Day. Well, <clears throat> in 533, a Byzantine expeditionary fleet on the Belisarius sails from Constantinople to attack the Vandals in Africa via Greece and Sicily. 1307, Kulu Khan is enthroned as Kagan of the Mongols and Wuzong of the Yuan. 1529, French forces are driven out of northern Italy by Spain in the Battle of Andriano during the War of the Legal Cognac. 1582, Sengoku period. Oda Nobunaga, the most powerful of Japanese Dayamos, is forced to commit suicide by his own general, uh, Kichi Mitsuhide. 1621. Execution of 27 Czech noblemen on the old town square in Prague as a consequence of the Battle of the White Mountain. 1734. Montreal and New France, a slave known by the French name of Marie Joseph Angelique, is put to death. She was convicted of uh, setting the fire that destroyed much of the city. She set fire to her owner's home and burned much of what's now referred to as Old Montreal. She was kind of P.O.'d, apparently. 1749, Halifax, Nova Scotia is founded. 1768, James Otis Jr. offends the king in Parliament in a speech to the Massachusetts General Court. 1788, New Hampshire becomes the ninth state to ratify the Constitution. 1791, Louis XVI of France and his immediate family begin to flight to Varennes during the French Revolution. 1798, Irish Rebellion of 1798. British Army defeats Irish rebels at the Battle of Vinegar Hill. 1813, Peninsula War. Wilmington defeats Joseph Bonaparte at the Battle of Victoria. 1824, Greek War of Independence. Egyptian forces capture Pesara in the Aegean Sea. 
1826. Uh, Maniots defeat Egyptians under Ibrahim Pasha at the Battle of Vergas. 1848. In the Wallachian Revolution, Ion Aliani Radulescu and uh, Christian Tell issued the proclamation of his lies and created a new Republican government. 1864. American Civil War, Battle of Jerusalem, Plank Road begins. Also known as the First Battle of the Weldon Railroad, it was fought near Petersburg, Virginia in 1864. First of a series of battles during the Siege of Petersburg aided extending the Union siege lines to the west and cutting the rail lines supplying Petersburg. Two infantry corps of the Union Army of the Potomac attempted to sever the railroad, but were attacked and driven off by the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia under Robert E. Lee. It was done principally by the division commanded by Brigadier General William Mahone. Um, this inclusive battle, inconclusive battle, left the Weldon Railroad temporarily in Confederate hands, but the Union Army began to extend its fortifications to the west and increase the pressure. Uh, caused by the siege. 1898, U.S. captures Guam from Spain. A few warning shots fired by the U.S. naval vessels are misinterpreted as salutes by the Spanish garrison, which was unaware the two nations were at war. Golly gee whiz. 1900, Boxer Rebellion. China formally declares war on the U.S., Britain, Germany, France, and Japan as an edict issued from the Empress Dowager Sichi. 1915, the Supreme Court hands down its decision in Gwen versus U.S., striking down Oklahoma uh, grandfather clause legislation had the effect of denying the right to vote to blacks. 1919, Royal Canadian Mounted Police fire a volley into a crowd of unemployed war veterans. They killed two during the Winnipeg General Strike. Also in 1919, Admiral Ludwig von Reuter scutters the German fleet at Scapa Flow with Orkney. Nine sailors killed in the last casualties of World War I. 1921, Irish village of Mount Crogery is burned by British forces. 1929, an agreement brokered by U.S. Ambassador Dwight Whitney Morrow ends the Cristero War in Mexico. 1930, one-year conscription comes into force in France. 1940, World War II, Italy begins an unsuccessful invasion of France. 1942, World War II, Trabuk falls to Italian and German forces. 33,000 Allied troops are taken prisoner. Also in 1942, Japanese submarine surfaces near the Columbia River in Oregon fired 17 shells at Fort Stevens in one of only a handful of attacks by Japan against the U.S. mainland. 1945. Battle of Okinawa ends with the organized resistance of Imperial Japanese Army forces uh, collapses in the Mabuni area on the southern tip of the main island. 1952, the Philippine School of Commerce, through a Republic, a Republic Act, is converted to the Philippine College of Commerce, later to be uh, the Polytechnic University of the Philippines. 1957, Ellen Fairclough uh, is sworn in as Canada's first female cabinet member. 1963, Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini is elected Pope Paul VI. 1964, three civil rights workers, Andrew Goodman, James Chanian, 
Michael Schwarmer murdered in Neshoba County, Mississippi by members of the Ku Klux Klan. 1970, Penn Central declares Section 77 bankruptcy in what was the largest U.S. corporate bankruptcy to date. Uh, 1973, in its decision in Miller versus California, the Supreme Court established the Miller test for determining whether something is obscene and not protected speech under the U.S. Constitution. The, um, for those who are not familiar with the Miller test, it's a three-prong obscenity test. Um, these three parts, uh, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find the, the work taken as a whole appeals to the purient interest, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct or excretory function specifically defined by applicable state law, and whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. If all three conditions are satisfied, the work is obscene, which, quite frankly, would encompass much of what uh, this current administration is doing. But that's just me. Uh, 1978, the original production of Tim Rice and Andrew Weber's musical Evita, based on the life of Eva Peron, opens at uh, the Prince Edward Theatre in London. 1982, John Hinckley's found not guilty by reason of insanity for the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. What's interesting is, while Reagan was being shot, John Hinckley's father was having lunch with uh, George H.W. Bush, the vice president. 1989, U.S. Supreme Court rules in Texas versus Johnson, American flag burnings to form a political protest protected by the First Amendment. 2000, Section 28 of the Local Government Act of 1988, outlawing the promotion of homosexuality in the UK, is repealed in Scotland with a 99 to 17 vote. 2001, a federal grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, indicts 13 Saudis and Lebanese in a 1996 bombing of the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia that killed 19 American servicemen. 2004, Spaceship One becomes the first privately funded space plane to achieve space flight. 2005, Edgar Ray Killen, uh, who had previously been unsuccessfully tried for the murder of James Cheney, Admiral Goodman, and Mickey Swerners, convicted of manslaughter 41 years after the incident. The case was reopened in 2004. 2006, Pluto's newly discovered moons officially named Nixon Hydra. 2009, Greenland assumed self-rule. And in 2012, a boat carrying more than 200 migrants capsizes in the Indian Ocean between the Indonesian islands of Java and Christmas Island. Killed 17 people and left 70 others missing. Now, if they'd waited until the railroad that uh, our president talked about from the Pacific across the Indian Ocean was completed, they could have just ridden in. But, you know, again, that's just me. All right. We've been talking about... Uh, the Kennedy hit list. You know, you know, after the, the the assassination of President Kennedy, a lot of people who were directly or indirectly involved also died. Um, many of them uh, made statements to the effect they knew who was responsible. And then, next thing you know, they're found dead. How about Guy Bannister? He was a private investigator. He had a heart attack. 
the fact that the CIA had invented a heart attack gun uh, was just a coincidence. The official verdict? Natural causes. But some of the official verdicts don't make any sense. There was one uh, who shot himself behind the left ear and he was right-handed. And that was ruled a suicide. Well, there were a number of inconsistencies. Now, Bannister was the former head of the FBI Chicago office. A rabid anti-communist in general and anti-Castroist in particular. He developed a huge and intricate filing system on communist activities and all his files vanished after his death. Apparently they were seized by uh, unknown authorities. No inconsistencies in the death were apparent except for the virtually impossible coincidence that every witness connected to the Guy Bannister aspect of the case, including Bannister himself, died suddenly just prior to their being sought in the investigation of their connections to Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, you know, Bannister is a key link in the Kennedy assassination and closely associated with two other key players, David Ferry and New Orleans Mafia boss Carlos Marcello. Uh, Ferry works as a pilot and private investigator for Marcello. Now, in 1963, Bannister and David Ferry began working on the, for the lawyer, uh, G. Wade Gill, and his client, Carlos Marcello. Bannister was later linked to the plot to assassinate Kennedy. August 9th, 1963, Oswald distributed leaflets that supported the Fidel Castro and his government in Cuba. On his leaflets was the address, 544 Camp Street in New Orleans. And it just so happens... It was also the office of Carlos Bringier, an anti-Castro exile. Now, the office led investigators to Guy Bannister because his detective agency was part of the same office as the Fair Play for Cuba committee. It was technically around the corner at a different street address, but it was in the same building and right next door to the, the Fair Play for Cuba committee. Now, Jack Martin was a private investigator employed by Bannister, who eventually confided to the District Attorney Jim Garrison that uh, Bannister and David Ferry had been involved in the assassination of Kennedy. According to Martin, Ferry was the gateway man, or the getaway man, whose job it was to fly the assassin out of Texas. And he claimed that Ferry knew Lee Harvey Oswald from their days in the Orleans Civil Air Patrol and had given him lessons on how to use a rifle with a telescopic sight. Now, Ferry was a, became a very popular witness. Sought for interviews, first by the FBI and then by Jim Garrison. On November 25th, three days after the assassination, Martin was contacted by the FBI, told him he thought Ferry had hypnotized Oswald into assassinating Kennedy. And it's true, Ferry was actually a highly accomplished hypnotist. Information eventually reached Garrison, the district attorney in New Orleans, and he interviewed Martin about those accusations. And Martin claimed during the summer of 63, Garrison uh, 
became convinced that a group of right-wing activists, including Bannister, David Ferry, Carl's Bringier, and Clay Shaw, were involved in a conspiracy with the CIA to kill Kennedy. Garrison claimed this was in retaliation for his attempts to attain a peace settlement with Cuba and Vietnam. Now, the links between Oswald and Bannister have historically been established. They weren't just the matter of Oswald's pamphlets having been stored in Bannister's office and you know, some apologists for the Warren Commission have made it out to be. Oswald had been in Bannister's office and been seen in Bannister's company. The two quite obviously knew each other and apparently knew each other fairly well. Delphine Roberts worked for Bannister and later became uh, his mistress. Roberts told Anthony Summers, the author, that during the summer of 63, Oswald worked for Bannister. Says she was in the office when Bannister suggested Oswald should establish a local fair play for Cuba committee. And uh, that story was supported by Delphine Roberts' daughter, who met Oswald during this period and apparently knew him fairly well. Former FBI agent and author William Turner, being a somewhat cautious investigator, was at first skeptical to those who uh, noted the convenient deaths associated with the Kennedy assassination witnesses, but he eventually was swayed by the a number of what were called impossible coincidences. He said, as I sat in Garrison's office discussing the fates of Bannister, Ward, and Gatlin, Ramparts uh, had run a story on the mysterious death theory of Texas uh, editor Penn Jones Jr. And the uh, number of mysterious deaths outlined in that article uh, fascinated Walter Cronkite to the point he sent a film crew to Midlothian for CBS News series on Jones. And although the theory caught on as evidence of a conspiracy, it was... Um, Turner was somewhat skeptical, but the untimely deaths of Bannister, Ward, and Gatlin gave him uh, pause that there might be, in fact, a systematic elimination of people who knew too much about the Kennedy assassination. Now, after Bannister, Ward, and Gatlin, Turner went on to note the extremely convenient death of David Ferry two months before. Ferry is considered a key piece of the JFK assassination puzzle being put together by District Attorney Garrison. So Bannister was already dead by the time Garrison figured out the Oswald-Bannister connection, but it's interesting to note that right after Bannister died, his office was ransacked and all his files vanished. And he had extensive detail files. After Bannister's death, Jack Martin had been one of Bannister's private investigators, was nervous when District Attorney Garrison asked about the connection to the assassination. And uh, Garrison later discussed his interview with Jack Martin about the goings-on at Bannister's office. Um, he said David Ferry... Uh, practically lived in Bannister's office. And Lee Harvey Oswald's there as well. Sometimes he'd be meeting with a guy Bannister with the door shut. Other times he'd be shooting the bull with Dave Ferry. But he was there much at a time. 
and what was Garrison asked what Bannister was doing while this was going on, and uh, Martin said he was the one running the show. Garrison asked about his detective work, and he said not much of that came in, but when it did, I handled it, and that's why I was there. Well, at the end of the day, a lot of planning, as it were, went on in uh, Bannister's office. And Bannister used his uh, government connections from his time with the FBI to a uh, great extent. We got two other um, deaths somewhat associated. We got Hugh, Hugh Ward, who died May 22nd, 1964, and Deslesips Morrison, who also died May 22nd, 1964. Deslesips Morrison was mayor of New Orleans, and Hugh Ward was a private investigator. They died in a plane crash. The official verdict, of course, was accident. Nothing to see here. Move on. Um, there were no inconsistencies uh, apparent except for the virtually impossible coincidence that every witness connected to the same aspect of the case died just prior to their being sought out by Jim Garrison. Hugh Ward was a private investigator who worked directly with two people at the main nucleus of the JFK assassination, Guy Bannister and David Ferry. Bannister and Ferry were at the core of events that set up the assassination of Kennedy and, and the setup of Harry Oswald as the um, apparent assassin. This Lessons Morrison was the mayor of New Orleans who was involved in a large number of dealings. It's interesting to note that New Orleans was in many ways the center staging location for the assassination which took place in Dallas. New Orleans was also the home base of the Mafia boss Carlos Marcello, David Ferry, Dr. Barry Sherman, and Lee Harvey Oswald himself. Now, not much is known about the deaths of New Orleans Mayor Morrison and Hugh Ward. It is known that the incredibly uncanny deaths of several key witnesses certainly stretches the incredulity to... Uh, fair-minded investigator. Then we've got Maurice Gatwa. He was an attorney. Legal counsel to Minutemen. Also associated with Guy Bannister. He had a heart attack and fell out of a six-story balcony. Official verdict? Natural causes. Well, there were a couple of inconsistencies. While attending a meeting of the Inter-American Bar Association in San Juan, Puerto Rico, he suffered a heart attack and fell over the edge of a uh, six-floor balcony. Nobody's sure exactly how that happened, and there's no other information available. Uh, the investigation just kind of glossed over that. He was another key witness being sought by District Attorney Jim Garrison. Now, Maurice Brooks Gatlin was a well-connected attorney who was a fervent anti-communist in league with private investigator Guy Bannister and a number of others associated with the anti-Castro efforts. He was legal counsel to the Minutemen, an extremely conservative group that was being investigated by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison because it was suspected of being linked to the Kennedy assassination. 
another item of note, in addition to his association with Guy Bannister, a man linked by many to the plotting of the assassination, as well as the setup of Lee Harvey Oswald as the Patsy, Garrett was also linked to others who had been uh, who have been previously mentioned as playing roles in the murder of JFK. He was also involved with the dealings of a longtime CIA agent, E. Howard Hunt, mafia boss Carmen Marcello, and he had an extensive connection to organized crime, especially the National Syndicate, said they've been run by Seymour Weiss of the uh, Standard Troop Company, which was the sponsor of the Guatemalan coup and mafia kingpin Carlos Marcello. In 58, Hunt organized an anti-communist conference in Guatemala. Conference chairman was Antonio Valadores, Marcello's attorney in New Orleans, and also present at that meeting was Maurice Gatlin. His office was also at 544 Camp Street, um, which is where you found the Fair Play for Cuba committee and the office of several other players. Well... At this point, even skeptic William Turner, former FBI agent, said the untimely death of Bannister, Warden, Gatlin gave me pause that there might be something involved in the, the theory there was a systematic uh, removing of potential witnesses. How about Arlene Roberts, landlady at the rooming house in Dallas where Lee Harvey Oswald lived? Died of a heart attack. And, of course, natural causes, nothing to see here. But she was so harassed by the authorities, her relatives believed her health was ruined by it. So even if her heart attack was from natural causes, you might say it was still caused by her relationship to folks involved in the Kennedy assassination. Now, she was a nurse, but when she became diabetic, she gave up her nursing career and began renting out rooms in her home in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. She was a very intelligent and confident woman and said by many to talk to her to be a good witness. October 14, 1963, she rented a room in her home to Lee Harvey Oswald, but it was under a different name. He called himself O.H. Lee when he rented from her. Lee Roberts was an important witness and the authorities weren't happy about what she had to say. She testified that a friend called her at about 1 p.m. and informed her of the assassination of President Kennedy. Immediately turned on her TV, which was, of course, uh, showed the news of the assassination. At about that time, Oswald walked through the door, saw what was on TV, and rushed to his room and shut the door. Well... She was sure she saw and heard a police car stop honk outside Oswald's room right after the assassination. And while Oswald was in his room, a police car from the Dallas uh, Police Department um, clearly stopped right in front of the house. And Ms. Robert was uh, a confident witness whose testimony reveals the, exactly what she saw. You know, she went on to testify that the number she saw in the police car was 106, and shortly after the police car honked, Oswald left the house. Well, this posed a problem for authorities because the police department denied they had any cars in that area anywhere near 1 p.m. 
And her testimony also raised another issue because the time frame in which she placed Oswald leaving her home made it difficult to him to have been at the scene of the murder of Officer Tippett just a few minutes later. She saw Oswald waiting at the bus stop outside her house. A couple minutes later, Officer Tippett was dead and Oswald was accused of being the perpetrator. But the Tippett crime scene was over a mile away and it was established that no buses came by during that time frame. So what happened as a result of these disparities between her testimony and the official version of events? Well, after testifying in Dallas in April of 64, she was subjected to intensive police harassment. They visited her all hours of the day and night, contacted her employers, and identified her as the, the Oswald uh, rooming house lady. As a result, she was fired from three housekeeping and nursing jobs in April, May, and June of 64. Now, it's actually fair to say that Ms. Roberts was probably driven to her death by all the harassment. Relatives report that right up until her death a year and a half later, she was complaining of being worried to death by the police. Now, clearly, the police had their scenario that they were pushing. And anything that... Uh, disagreed with their scenario, was attacked. And according to Ms. Roberts herself, every time she'd walk out the front porch, somebody was standing with a, there with a camera. They had her literally scared to death. Uh, now this case very clearly relates to the Kennedy assassination with... Another very obvious case of the powers that be intimidating and harassing a key witness because her testimony didn't fit with the official version. And as far as her death, it appears to be actually have been a heart attack. So it's impossible to determine the cause, but her relatives said her deteriorating health was a direct result of the harassment. Now we've got Al Bogard. Died of carbon monoxide poisoning immediately ruled a suicide. He witnessed Oswald, what the real Oswald couldn't have been, subjected to harassment but appears to have been very depressed and um, actually taken his own life. Now, he was the car salesman who witnessed Oswald, or an Oswald impersonator, test driving a car at high speed. And this was interesting because the real Oswald couldn't drive. Seemed like a setup to establish something about Oswald's history, uh, referred to in intelligence parlance as creating a legend, because the person also made the specific point of talking about Russia and telling Bogard no uncertain terms. He couldn't afford a car at the moment, but was expecting coming to a large sum of money in the very near future. And he also specifically made the comment, loud enough for others to hear, that maybe he'd have to go back to Russia to get a car. So Bogart remembered writing that name down on a business card, Lee Oswald. When he heard Oswald's name on television as a suspect in the assassination, he was sure it was the same Oswald. Then threw the card in the garbage. Well, the FBI heard about him dispensing with that card, and well, they were concerned about why he did that. The real Bogart question is, why did the FBI go to through a trash dumpster to find a Bogart business card on which he wrote the name Lee Oswald. Now, if Oswald himself wrote it, it would matter, but 
just doesn't make any sense, except the FBI left no garbage dumpsters unchecked in their attempt to find that card. Well, it came to light why the FBI was so interested in that business card. Later on, it was clearly established to real Oswald was someplace else on that date at the time he supposed he was test-driving a car. But the card was actual physical proof that somebody was impersonating Oswald at the downtown Lincoln Mercury dealership at the same time. Now, Oswald, the one with Lorena and Ruth Payne, was clearly alibied for the afternoon November 9th. Again, uh, which made it clear there was an imposter pretending to be Oswald. And the business card Bogart wrote the name Lee Oswald on was the evidence showing that there was an imposter. And that's why Lawrence called it in. It also explains why FBI agents combed through the dumpster in search of that card. It was hard evidence to prove that there were two people pretending to be Oswald. You know, without the card, and we know from other instances where real evidence was messed with or people saw things were wrong, it clearly had been stated that Bogart was wrong. It actually waited on a customer named, for instance, Lou Osborne, and in the confusion and Upset of the moment, mistook Lee Oswald for Lou Osborne, who amazingly bore a striking resemblance to Lee Oswald. The card would make it clear that uh, it was Lee Oswald that was allegedly introducing himself to Lawrence, and Now, the, Oswald, the FBI didn't find the card, or so they said, and Bogart was subjected to the Cinco-like interviews, including one in the cells of the Dallas jail prior to his alleged suicide in February 66. Now, when you talk about a Nasenko-style interview, that was in reference to a brutal interrogation of a Russian spy suspected of being a double agent. There's so much obfuscation and elimination of unwanted evidence that uh, a book was written called The War on Omission in reference to that particular situation. And after the Kennedy assassination, when the card obviously should have been in, when the case obviously should have been investigated to determine whether the witness actually saw, instead those, interest, uh, those interviews were structured to avoid certain facts and are actually noteworthy for what they didn't cover. There were clearly orchestrated interviews conducted by the FBI. Now, even then, the FBI uh, had been weaponized uh, to arrive at a conclusion that uh, the powers that be wanted. Attempts by authorities to marginalize certain individuals should also be highly suspicious in their own right. For example, the FBI clearly attempted to marginalize the testimony of Arnold Rowland, who told him he saw a man in the sixth floor window of the school book depository that he could not identify as Oswald. Now what Roman did not see was an identifiable Lee Oswald with the gun because he didn't see that which had to be seen so the FBI sent a bevy of agents scurrying to interview anybody who could state for the record that Roland had a habit of lying or making things up for the sake of getting attention. 
They destroyed his reputation. But if Roland wanted attention, he could have made himself instantly famous by simply telling the FBI what they wanted to hear. And it was possible it could have been Oswald that he saw with the rifle. Well, he didn't. Now, Bogart was maligned in much the same manner, although somewhat rougher and more blatant. Bogart wasn't asked to describe the man he saw because he positively identified him. He wasn't taken to a lineup. Subsequently to, to this, he was given a lie detector test. He was also beaten severely by individuals unknown and re-interviewed by the FBI several times, including an interview held in the Dallas Police Department jail cells. On the date of September 17, 1964, when... The Warren Report was actually going to press. Now, it's not clear what exactly drove Bogart to commit suicide. It's clear he was bullied around by the FBI, and he said himself folks were out to get him. Well, the FBI, like a scene out of the CSI, searched high and low for that card and couldn't find it. Instead, they found Bogart by the side of the road, dead as a hammer. It appears he did indeed commit suicide. Uh, his first cousin, Jimmy Harper, found the body. Well, he didn't provide information indicating death by something other than suicide. His cousin did say that Bogart knew people were out to get him and may have, may have taken his own life for that very reason. Then on August 9, 1966, Lee Bowers died. Cause of death was wounds suffered in an automobile crash. Official verdict, accidental, nothing to see here. Uh, of course, eyewitnesses reported that Bowers' car was driven off the road by another car. Now, Bowers didn't die immediately. He said to have reported to emergency personnel that he believed that he'd been drugged during his stop for coffee shortly before the crash. Now, he was an important witness who was in a unique vantage port during the assassination and Clearly reported seeing things that contrasted with the official version of events. Now, Bowers' testimony is probably as explosive as any recorded by the Warren Commission. One of 65 known witnesses to the president's assassination who thought shots were fired from that area of the grassy knoll. The knolls to the west of the school book depository. But more than that, he was in a unique position to observe some pretty strange behavior in the knoll area, doing and immediately before the assassination. He was a tower man with the Union Terminal Company, and he was sitting in a 14-foot-tall tower directly behind the grassy knoll. And as he faced the assassination site, he could see the railroad overpass on his right. Directly in front of him was a parking lot and then a wooden stockade fence and a row of trees running along the top of the grassy knoll. And the knoll sloped down to the spot on Elm Street where Kennedy was killed. Now, the police had cut off traffic into the parking area, Bauer said, so anybody moving around would actually be immediately observed. What Bauer saw from that unique vantage point facing down uh, on the now infamous Grassy Knoll has fascinated JFK researchers for decades. He made two significant observations, which he revealed to the commission. First, he thought, saw three unfamiliar cars cruising around the parking area in the 35 minutes before the assassination. First two left after a few minutes. The driver of the second car appeared to be talking into a microphone or a telephone, holding something up to his mouth with one hand while he was driving with the other. 
The third car, with out-of-state plates and mud up to the windows, uh, rolled around the parking area. Bowers last remembered seeing it about eight minutes before the shooting, and it paused just above the assassination site. And he gave the Warren Commission detailed descriptions of the car and the drivers. He also observed two unfamiliar men standing on top of the knoll at the edge of the parking lot, about 10 or 15 feet from each other. One man, middle-aged or slightly uh, older, fairly heavy-set in a white shirt, dark trousers. The other younger man, about mid-twenties, with neither a plaid shirt, plaid coat, or jacket. And both were facing Elm and Houston, where the motorcycle, a motorcade would be seen coming. On August 9, 1966, Lee Bowers was killed when his car left the road and crashed into a concrete abutment in Midlothian, Texas. Now, he was headed west on Highway 67 out of Midlothian down to Claiborne, and according to eyewitnesses, was driven off the road by a black car, which sent him into the bridge abutment. He held on for four hours after the accident, and during that time was talking to the ambulance people and told him he felt he'd been drugged when he stopped for coffee a few miles back in uh, Midlothian. And according to author Penn Jones, Bowers began receiving death threats after testifying to the Warren Commission about what he had seen and gave further evidence to attorney Mark Lane. Bowers would have at first uh, insisted to Penn Jones there was nothing suspicious about her husband's death. And finally, she hesitated and said, well, they told him not to talk. Well, a researcher named David Welsh reported that the attending physician who accompanied Bowers in the ambulance noticed something peculiar about the victim. He was in a strange state of shock, a different kind of shock than an accident victim experiences. He said, I can't explain it. I've never seen anything like it. There was no autopsy, and the body was cremated shortly after he died. And doctors also saw no evidence he suffered a heart attack. And... Uh, the obvious question was actually asked by Geraldo Rivera. Why would Lee Bowers have been killed when it seemed he'd already told all he knew? Well, according to uh, information, Bowers confided to his minister he had seen a lot more than he had said publicly. A friend of Bowers, Walter Rischel, told reporters Bowers had been a flurry to tell all he actually witnessed during the Kennedy assassination. He said that Bowers confided in him with information that was much more specific about the assassination, but he was afraid to go public for fear something would happen. He said Lee disappeared for about two days, at least one night I'm sure about, which was very uncharacteristic. When he came back, one of his fingers was missing on one of his hands. So Lee gave uh, Monty, that's his brother, some excuse about what happened, which Monty really didn't accept. In fact, he called local hospitals, clinics, and some doctor's offices, and there was no record of anybody uh, going in and having a finger removed for any reason. Shortly after that, he was killed in a mysterious auto accident. Now, Ger Gerald Posner, who has done backflips trying to debunk anything and everything that says Oswald didn't do it, uh, have attempted to preclude the tale of Bauer's death as nothing more than sensationalism. As Posner proved, uh, said, it was conclusively proved that Bauer's death was an accident. Well, Posner's actually referring to the article by uh, researcher David Perry 
called Now It Can Be Told, the Lee Bowers story. They're referring to the criticism of the investigator work in Geraldo Rivera documentary that investigates the death of Lee Bowers and claims that were aired on the program. And some of the criticism of that program were, in fact, valid. Others were not. There are contradictory claims concerning certain events related to the death, which uh, can never be reconciled. It's difficult, if not impossible, to now verify them in any way with a sufficient degree of certainty. And that's not all that unusual regarding an obscure event that occurred several decades ago. It is true and noteworthy that some of the claims surrounding the death are unsubstantiated and vague. But the fact that the truth apparently lies somewhere in the middle does not preclude Mr. Posner from stating that Mr. Perry conclusively proved that Bauer's death was accidental. Be convenient, but it's not valid. Um, now, according to Mr. Perry, a man named Charles Good, former member of the Texas Highway Patrol, concluded that another car had indeed forced Mr. Bauer's car off the road. And he testified eyewitnesses' uh, testimony confirmed that. Now, the investigation of Charles Good by Mr. Perry um, revealed he was actually a member of the Texas Highway Patrol who claims to have investigated uh, the accident uh, and did conclude that a car ran his friend Lee Bowers off the road, but Mr. Perry couldn't dismiss the results of uh, Good's investigation, so he tried to minimize it, stating it's possible Bowers had been driving the car and in the rear, and if the driver uh, in front wasn't looking in the rearview mirror, he wouldn't know the accident occurred. Well, Monty Bowers, the brother of Lee Bowers, eventually concluded that Lee's allergies contributed to his death. Both Monty and Lee had severe allergies and were prone to fits of sneezing, and theoretically, he could have been sneezing and run off the road. But at the same time, witnesses saw another car run him off the road. Well, we got Marilyn Delilah Wally, who died August 30th, 1966, also known by the, her stage names, uh, in addition to Delilah, Miranda, Marilyn Moon, Marilyn Magier, and April Wally. She was an exotic dancer who was a regular performer at Jack Ruby's Carousel Club in Dallas. She uh, died of multiple gunshot wounds. The official verdict couldn't dismiss it as a determined case of suicide or as an accident, so they finally put it down to murder. Uh, actual circumstances, uh, she was apparently shot by her husband. As a, as a dancer at Ruby's Club, it was known that she witnessed Oswald's presence there on several occasions, as well as the fact it's apparent that Oswald and Ruby knew each other very well. But her mother, her mother, her mother, murder, does appear to have been a domestic uh, dispute unrelated to the assassination. But then again, if the police were, shall we say, uh, coerced, the deaths of anybody affiliated in any way with the Kennedy assassination may well have been uh, laundered, so to speak. In October 12, 1964, 
Mary Pinchot Meyer is dead. She was killed by two gunshots from a 38 at point-blank range. First one in the back of the head and the second one straight through the heart from the front. The official verdict, murdered indiscriminately and out for her morning run. They put it down as a possible sex crime. Uh, she was the wife of a high-level CIA officer who had a serious affair with President Kennedy. Um, yeah, she thought the investigation of the assassination was a total whitewash and used her own high-level connections to research who really killed Kennedy. After her death, there was a frantic search for her diary by uh, the CIA's counterintelligence chief. She was a gifted artist and had an aura of intelligence, which men found very attractive. She married Cord Meyer in 1945. He was a rising star at the CIA. Became involved in the CIA's organized effort to sway public opinion through uh, infiltration of the U.S. Uh, major media, which is apparently still going on. Uh, this was a secret campaign at the time known as Operation Mockingbird. According to Catherine Graham, who publisher of the Washington Post, uh, Cord Meyer was the principal operative of Operation Mockingbird. Among uh, Cord and Mary Meyer's best friends and companions in Washington was Ben Bradley, Washington Bureau Chief for Newsweek, who went on to become editor of the Washington Post. Mary's sister, uh, Tony, was married to Ben Bradley. So it was a very close um, knit group at the peak of the Washington, D.C. press corps. Mary and her husband were close friends with James Angleton and his wife. Angleton was the head of counterintelligence at the CIA. If I'm not mistaken, he was eventually brought up on charges. Cornmeyer politics drifted further and further to the right. It apparently alienated Mary, and she filed for divorce in 1958. She cited extreme mental cruelty at her, as her reason in the court documents. She became certain she was under surveillance after leaving her husband. Her telephone and bedroom were bugged, and she was sure that James Angleton was the one responsible. Several occasions in the summer of 64, she'd come home and find that somebody had been in her apartment while she was gone. Well, she reported these incidents to the police, and her friends were well aware that she was frightened by what was going on. The police, of course, were about as useful as a rubber crutch and did nothing. It was known that Mary had an affair with President Kennedy, and that... Uh, especially for his track record, this is a much more serious relationship than typically. Kennedy had many affairs while in the White House, and Angleton insisted President Mary Meyer were in love. They had a important relationship, so to speak. Well, Kennedy did enjoy her company and her intelligent conversation, and while it's not known how much of a political nature he shared with her, it's thought to be a great deal. Well... She left her home on the morning of October 12, 1964, to go out for her morning run. She was shot twice with a point-blank range with a 38. Died instantly. Black man named Ray Crump, black man named Ray Crump, was found nearby, arrested and charged with the crime. Forensically, he had absolutely no link with the murder. Tested for nitrates, and none were found on his hands. No blowback of blood on his clothing or person. Case was big news all over Washington as they could not find the murder weapon. Massive search came up empty even when 
own army, police officers and scuba divers searched every possible place nearby. Police even drained the water in the canal near the running path, came up with nothing. But rather than let a, the arrest of a black uh, go, they tried to raid Crump for the crime anyway. Newspaper reports hid the fact Mary's ex-husband was a senior CIA officer. They described him as a government official or an author. Newspapers also reported incorrectly Mary had been killed during a rape attempt. Never any evidence of that, although it became the police theory. Washington Post reported Mary's believed to be a victim of a robbery attempt, for which there was actually little or no evidence. Cord Meyer reported he supported the police version that the Ray Crump had attempted to sexually assault Mary and then killed her when she resisted. Uh, the exact quote from Cord Meyer was, I was satisfied by the conclusions of the police investigation that Mary had been the victim of a sexually motivated assault by a single individual and she had been killed in her struggle to escape. Well, there are many who thought that uh, everything Myers said was uh, coordinated by a CIA attorney. Now, his longtime personal assistant uh, made him out to be a liar. said Mr. Meyer didn't for a minute think Ray Crump murdered his wife or had been had an attempted rape. But being an agency man, he couldn't very well accuse the CIA of the crime. Although the murder had all the markings of an in-house rub-out. Well, it turns out the whole case against Mr. Crump was an exceedingly obvious case of hogwash. It was a smear job. In the spirit of, hey, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. The only problem with the charges against him was that there was absolutely no evidence supporting him. The whole trial was a sham. President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson's influence... Um, is a recurring common denominator in both the cover-up after the assassination and the clean-up operation uh, that followed the the judge who controlled the case was a political ally of Johnson. He ruled the private life of Mary couldn't be mentioned in court. And all the links to the CIA, including the pertinent fact she'd been married to one and uh, a senior agent had traveled those uh, power circles for many years were never allowed to be spoken of in the courtroom. Well known among her friends that Mary kept a diary and an urgent search for it began shortly after her death. And Ben and Tony Bradley went to Mary's house to search for the diary. They found uh, James Eichleton already there. Reports differ about what happened to the diary, but in any event it was destroyed. Now legally it belonged to her heirs, her children, but that's not that legality get involved of a good cover-up. When dealing with CIA, all that's important is realistically and uh, realistically, Mary's children never even allowed to view its contents. Now, Zaylin Grant, an author and Army intelligence veteran, did an excellent job of detailing most of the various inconsistencies in the case. Peter Janey, who was very close to the story, also amassed an incredible amount of important information. But um, unfortunately, we run out of time. So we'll finish talking about Mary uh, Meyer and her death in our next show. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.